You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. Um, this is a quick, quick introduction to myself before I kind of get going here. My name is Tim Deshanes. Um, I'm actually a chemist by training. Um, so that's what the PhD is in, is actually environmental analytical chemistry. Um, I've been interested in chemistry and alchemies for a very long time. So they kind of were kind of co-interests that started at the same time. Um, and what I actually, some of my background in college is I actually studied mythology and folklore with an emphasis on mythological analysis. And I took the chemistry background, the interest in alchemy and history, and then kind of the symbolic analysis approach, a kind of Jungian archetype approach, and I kind of put all those together. So what I'm going to present is some you know, interesting material on alchemical symbols and symbolism. Those that are familiar with uh, Jung, he has a whole book on alchemy. He was very fascinated by all the symbolism of alchemy and the kind of the transformation uh, more kind of personally than, say, you know, kind of in terms of the chemical aspects. So kind of a few various pieces of background that kind of come together. As I was mentioning earlier, some of the corner pieces here that I've pulled up are from encyclopedia pages from roughly 1800, 1790s to uh, 1804, when they're kind of the idea of encyclopedias and you know were coming about, and you start seeing people trying to actually kind of assemble all of these symbols into some kind of useful form, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Is that really possible or useful? One thing that I always like to remind people is. Alchemy is by, by no means just a kind of Western European phenomenon. Um, a lot of people kind of get lost in the idea of you know, the court alchemists or whatever, but alchemy has been practiced for thousands of years, it's been looked at. So a lot of cultures have had their own approach and you know, the kind of more recent alchemists would say, you know, the, the kind, of, kind of right around the Renaissance and after, or even a little bit before, drew a lot on you know, kind of Middle Eastern and other kind of um, areas where they were doing alchemy. I'm going to talk a lot about kind of, you know, European alchemy today, but I would like to kind of remind people that alchemy really kind of spans a lot of cultures and far more examples than I have here to even give. So here's just some Egyptian uh, alchemical symbols. Um, again, they're talking about their processes. Again, some things like gold and you know, and iron and lead. Yeah, these are just simple metals we're talking about. But again, there was a, a kind of a theory or practice of alchemy even in Egypt. Um, again, the Greeks, again, Plenty of knowledge, not just kind of philosophical, but again, alchemical. Um, this looks about right for some lab notebooks I used to see when I was teaching. So, you know, sometimes the, sometimes the artwork is better, sometimes it's worse, depending on who you're dealing with. Um, uh, Indian alchemy, again, that was actually a very, very kind of popular, uh, you know, a lot of Indian alchemy. So again, if you take away the Sanskrit, again, you'll get some of these drawings. We're going to see some drawings from woodcuts from Germany they look very, very familiar. So again, a wide history of alchemy. <coughs> We're just kind of taking a small snapshot, to say the least. Well, we always like to start with the four, the four elements. You know, again, right out of you know, Greek philosophy. You know, it's interesting when we start talking about the four elements. Is um, at the time the theory of four elements was put out there is actually when the uh, the theory of the atom was actually first put out there as well. The concept that all that things can be broken down to you know indivisible particles. So the first real theory of the atom actually came around the same time as the four elements. At that point, it was wasn't about who was better at proving their concept by experimental work, but rather by debate. So the concept of the four elements kind of took on more because you know, whoever put out the idea could explain it better or defend it more philosophically. So 
you know, it would be a long time before we come back to the theory of the element. So, but everything we're going to talk about really starts out with the four elements and builds off of that. Um, everyone's kind of familiar with the four elements. You hear about it a lot. Um, again, my students, when I used to teach chemistry, we would prefer to really have four elements. A lot less to learn, a lot less to memorize. Um, I would quickly dash that hope the first day of class. Um, of course, we have four elements. We start having the interrelationship of the four elements and how they come together, their overlap, and their interaction. Again, a lot of theories held that th everything was made up of four elements, but it was the amount of the four elements or the absence of the four elements that defined something. So as we have kind of modern molecules, you have the idea that things are a combination. You have you know, two parts water, one part air, you know, one part earth, but you're missing fire or something. So the alchemists, one of the approaches was to balance out all the elements. If you can balance out all the elements or pull out the one piece that you need, be part of what you're after. I'm going to show a bunch of woodcuts. I try and list the sources whenever possible, but there's a lot of places you can get this. There's actually a couple of really good books, one called, one called Chemical History Tour, uh, one, another one called Art and Chemistry. It's actually a professor I used to work with who has an amazing collection of books and manuscripts, and he published a lot of this, so I was able to kind of take a lot of the stuff he had and pull from that. A lot of different, uh, a lot of different sources you'll see that I pull from here. This one is from the Responsion Mundi et Astronomorum Ordinaire. Okay, my Latin's a little rusty. My, I'm not awake enough yet. But roughly 1472. We're um, gonna see a lot of stuff around that age. <coughs> we'll also kind of bring in again. We're talking about interconnectedness, and this is one of the things we see: is Aristotle's transmutation diagram how all four elements relate, but also what happens when you start bringing those elements together, the relationship of them. So you have the correspondence of fire and water, the air and earth, but also then what happens at the intersection between fire and earth or earth and water. So we get kind of four just kind of humors or you know, kind of other types of relations. So you have you know, the hot, you have dry and cold, and you have wet. And Understanding how this transmutation works or how the relationship goes is again becomes part of the alchemist's path. And <laughs> I like to remind people that the idea of the yep. four elements really kind of sneaks in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And this seems like a kind of an interesting kind of pop culture reference, but again, you think of you know the Fantastic Four. It really is a couching of the four elements and the interaction. So you would have air. Fire is obviously kind of easy, the earth one. Then water, the trend, you kind of the kind of ability to take any kind of container you put it in approach. So the idea of the four elements has not left our culture, and in fact, it keeps coming back in various ways. If you you know look at the kind of way things are represented, it does kind of keep reappearing. So well we've talked about four, the four elements, you can even talk about the square that comes out of that or kind of the diamond pattern. Now we can bring in another set of pieces, the Tria Prima. <coughs> this is first kind of really discussed by Paracelsus, who's most known for his work in medicine, for talking about the body as a whole system, and starting to treat the body, you know, again, as a whole system, but also using mineral salts. Instead of just all herbs and plants, he starts using mineral aspects. So he also brings up the idea that the body has three parts that are balanced. And to be in perfect health, you have to balance these three parts. There is the, the male soul, the sophic sulfur. There's the female, which is the spirit, 
the sulfic mercury, and the sulfic salt, the body. You have to have all three things in balance. And this is a, a, an important trend that we see in alchemy that kind of keeps coming back. Not just the idea of the triangle, we actually can see that with the you know, four elements, the symbols for those, but the interrelation is a male and a female and a third aspect. So you need not just a male and a female, but you have to bring together and get that third aspect, that, 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 that you know, material body that you know, kind of brings all those pieces together. So here's a, a kind of a representation of the interconnectedness of the three parts, how they all come together in the form of one kind of whole piece. You have your, your sophic you know, salt, your sophic mercury, and your sophic sulfur. And those that are really astute, this actually has appeared in pop culture itself. This was actually um, shown in an image in a book in the first Harry Potter movie. Huh. So yeah, again, obviously Harry Potter with Nicholas Flamel that brings back that idea of alchemy. This is actually also used by um, Earth people talking about mesmer. So the idea of mesmerism, this is actually a symbol used in a flyer talking about mesmerism. So these symbols, even some of the artwork, kind of reappears in its own way. So, but yeah, this shows kind of how all these pieces, they're all interrelated, they're all tangled together, and all important together. So we're talking about two concepts, four elements, and then the tree of prima. But it also brings us to shapes, to a triangle and a square, four and three also in terms of numerology. I kind of like to pause every now and then remind people that a lot of people think of alchemy as pre-chemistry or proto-chemistry. So they think, oh, alchemy is what they did before they had chemistry. Well, alchemy brings together religion, chemistry, numerology, astrology, astronomy, lots and lots of various pieces and it fed, it kind of fed a lot of things that we see in modern science, but also modern religion and modern philosophy. A lot of people also think alchemists as, you know, kind of these shady characters, a lot of them are charlatans as well. So you get a lot of, uh, a lot of people who are, you know, trying to find ways to convince people, just give me more gold and I'll make more gold for you, and end up leaving in the middle of the night with all the gold that you've given them. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, it was kind of the, really, you know, the kind of the quintessential get rich quick scheme which worked until you got caught, and most kings did not appreciate you running off with their gold at night, so those alchemists did not survive very long. But, you know, a lot of alchemists did a lot of work in relation with the church. You know, there were a lot of religious people doing alchemy, or, you know, that's where they <coughs> study was in monasteries. A lot of work happened in monasteries, was a great place to get study, because you weren't looking at just the body, you were looking to transform from the mundane to the sacred to the spiritual. So, take the base and kind of improve upon it or purify it. So very important kind of religious aspects that come out of alchemy. Um, we see it in a lot of trends. Again, I've mentioned Jung and his idea, that personal transformation. So I was into mind that alchemy is by far not just pre-chemistry or proto-chemistry. So again, kind of number-wise, three, four, and now seven. Seven days of the week, the seven, the seven metals, seven planetary metals. At the time, the ancients knew of what they called seven planets. You know, the sun was a planet of the of there, of course, as is the moon, and then the other five known planets, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn. And all of these played roles, they all had personalities. So a day of the week could be important in terms of what element and what metal was important that day of the week, but also um, what you know, kind of aspect it might bring to it. So every metal had its own aspects. You know, um, 
Saturn is you know, kind of old and slow, kind of plodding, where you might have um, obviously iron speaking to the more warlike Mars, but also practical, you know, get things done, problem solving. So every day had its own kind of aspects it would bring to the work. And you see this idea kind of playing itself out in terms of things are done at an appropriate time because of the influences, you know, numerologically, astrologically. So most of these you're probably familiar with, especially looking at things like horoscopes or, you know, again, these, these kind of come up a lot. Obviously, the symbol for iron, the symbol for um, Venus, your male and your female as well. You can see those symbols. Crescent moon for silver, again, a circle with a dot for the sun. Some of these make sense too, and it's, I would like to remind people that when you look at these symbols, sometimes there aren't always the deeper meaning. Sometimes it's a very simple meaning. And if you look too deep, sometimes you miss the important things that are kind of right in front of you. And I've got some examples I'll show you in a minute to kind of drive my point home. Um, and again, were these always the assigned metals for the days of the week for the plants? No, alchemists, just like any other group, kind of tend to do their own thing, and then people have their own theories, their own ways of doing things. This is a table out of uh, an art from roughly 1937, where the author basically looked at various times, various places, various people, and how they assigned the various metals. And so Saturn, you know, one source was it even, a, you know, was it related to a metal? And most of the time it would be lead. Sometimes it would be iron or even copper. Jupiter could be gold or silver or tin most of the time. So, you know, the idea that there is one unified set of symbols that all alchemists use or they agreed on things, not so much. Nowadays we see it as kind of a final picture that they most agreed upon, but, you know, you know, obviously, even uh, you know, the moon would be crystal, wouldn't you know, be considered a, you know, a metal per se. So, you know, when we look at things, we have to realize, okay, this is be one specific framework. So, everyone has a framework that works for them, depending on the culture and their background. Well, I mentioned, I've mentioned astrology several times. So, day of the week had a metal, but also the zodiac sign had a particular process. So. Some people would look at an alchemical process as lasting maybe a year. So every month would be a different process that was part of what you were doing. Some would take a much longer approach and take years, okay, sometimes even waiting a year between aspects so that that process they knew would come back around. And again, we're not going to talk about all the different kind of aspects, but again, those that are familiar with modern chemistry, there are still a lot of pieces that kind of fall out of this. You know, we have calcination, we have solution, distillation, uh, that kind of come out of that. Again, we're all familiar with the, with the zodiac. This kind of shows us some of the symbology, the timeliness, how pieces are put together. So we have um, yeah, sublimation, fermentation, multiplication, projection. So some of these can be considered in a, in a process, step by step. But sometimes the alchemical processes, the the work that the office was doing might not fit the set order. You have to kind of do things out of order and come back around with that. Now, I'm not going to spend lots of time on every single symbol, but I want to show you that you know, there's a very diverse kind of alphabet. The modern chemist has a periodic table. There is a very set way, agreed upon structure, to explain what happens. You know, if I take sodium metal plus chlorine gas, I'll get sodium chloride, and I can describe that nice and clean. The goal of the alchemist was to be able to kind of record what they were doing, 
but not make it always readily available to the lay person. You had to understand the symbolism that went into it, into what was going on, to be able to understand the process. Because alchemically, there are kind of, you know, with the alchemical process, there, there's more than just the physical layer going on. You're not just taking a metal and purifying it, or taking something and transmutating it to get the philosopher's stone. You're also changing yourself. And it's an important aspect that a lot of people get stuck on is that the goal of the alchemist is just to turn lead into gold. There are actually three goals of the alchemist. Turn, you know, again, to transmute the base into kind of the pure, and, that, and gold and silver were considered to be the pure metals. They were very unreactive, they were noble metals. So they're still described on the periodic table today. But there was also the, you know, to kind of, see, so transmutation of the metals, but also of healing, purifying the body is an important aspect of that in kind of alchemical work. Again, people talk about the philosopher's stone. That is, again, sometimes it was actually an oil that you would take the oil to kind of heal the body. So the personal transformation, transform, led to gold, but also kind of purifying the body. So three kind of different aspects. This is where I start really delving into symbolism a bit more. If we look at some of these symbols, they actually mirror what's going on. So it's like also a shorthand. If I'm distilling something, I've got something heated up, it goes up and it comes down and it condenses back down into a liquid. So, you know, think of the triangle for fire. So you're heating something up. You heat something up and it boils to steam. Then the distillation would have a tube that would collect, condense, and drip down and you collect what had been distilled. Sometimes the symbols were very good shorthand. That's all they were. Um, you know, let's see. I want, well, go to any modern pharmacy, you're going to see this symbol to take an RX, a prescription. So these symbols, these symbols crop up in different places. Um, sublimate and precipitate. If I'm precipitating something, I'm getting it to drop out of solution. It's going from here, it's plugging down the bottom. Sublimation, I'm taking a solid, I'm going to cause it to go to the gas, I'm going to cause it to recondense back as a solid. Um, dry ice is a great example. Dry ice doesn't go to a liquid, it goes from a solid to a gas, and then if it's something cold nearby, it'll recondense. Iodine's a great example. You take iodine crystals on the bottom of a piece of like a tube or whatever. You heat it up in your hand, it'll go to a gas, nice purple gas, and it'll recondense on the top of the glass or something like that. So again, it goes from a solid back up and it recollects. So sometimes the symbols were just handy shorthand. No, they're not. Some of them are very connected to other symbols. So you'll see something like precipitate and sublimate have multiple meanings. And this is part of the kind of the goal of the alchemist to keep their work secret, except unless you know what's being talked about. Sometimes it's all about context. You know, if it's not in that one context, if it's if I, I could write this out just like a, a standard chemical formula. You take this, you precipitate, you do this. But I may put a whole set of symbols and maybe kind of couch in a different environment. So yeah, it can have multiple meanings <coughs> or very contextual meanings. And sometimes one symbol represents a whole step or a whole process. That's one of the things we're going to build into is, you know, these are kind of, again, these are just the, the pieces. How do we start putting them together? Um, so now we start talking about some of these things you may have heard of in modern times. You have, you have the aqua fortis, the aqua regia, oil of vitriol. This is now sulfuric acid, oil of vitriol. Aquaphorus is nitric acid or fortified water, not 
be confused with four red wine, um, <laughs> which could be something else entirely. Um, we have the aqua regia, which is a combination of hydrochloric and nitric acid. And it's important because this is called royal water. This is important because it's the only thing that could actually dissolve gold, platinum, and silver. So it was royal water because it could dissolve the royal or the noble metals. Um, potent stuff. And now we start seeing, again, some pieces. This is the these are all three symbols for water, but they've been modified. So, you know, aqua fortis is just a, you know, literally an F tacked onto the, the side of the water symbol. Or an R for aqua regia, aqua vitae, if you think of the, the V, you think of the VI and then a T inside of here, the vitae for that water blood. And sometimes it's a simple modification. We have we go from vinegar to distilled vinegar. We've taken the symbol and just slightly modified it. So we kind of show a progression that's kind of gone on something happened to that vinegar. Um, so universal seed, we'll talk about that one in a minute. In essence, I hate to say it, but some of those people who are involved in role-playing games, you might recognize a lot of these symbols from um, White Wolf publications in the mage or whatever. So <laughs> modern role-playing games will also pull these in. Again, these show up in a lot of places, sometimes unexpectedly. Some of my favorite ones, antimony, um, also called flowers of antimony. So you get these nice kind of flowery symbols because the way it crystallized out. Um, the ancient used to think platinum was a, an amalgam of gold and silver, so they just took the two symbols and they stuck them together. Again, sometimes we're not talking a deep symbolic meaning, sometimes it's simple practicality. So, you know, when reading alchemical works, sometimes there's a deeper meaning, and sometimes it's very kind of in your face and simple. The, ch the challenge is you got to know what is what. And, you know, a lot of the authors will write, if you understand what I'm talking about here, da da da, or if you understand this step here, you can move on to this step. And there's really a buildup of knowledge from one piece to the next for an alchemical process. And the way the symbols work is there's a buildup process as well. Another one I'll mention here quickly is sulfur. Again, it's a fire. The fire and brimstone. You know, fire and the smell of sulfur. So, you know, the sulfur symbol is a quick derivative of fire. Just like, you know, we have the amount of the combining of gold and silver. Yeah. We saw um, universal seed, but we now see niter, which is you know, another salt related to that. Here we have tartar, which is basically what crystallizes the bottom of a wine barrel, tartaric acid, or the leaves of wine. So, yeah, modified symbol of some variety. So, you know, sulfur with its you know, kind of addition on here, the fire symbol, we see the addition of, of the tail and the piece under the bottom of the tartar, tartaric acid. The, the symbol for material sulfur here is also a combination of the symbol for the philosophical sulfur and precipitation. It can so be, yes. the precipitated sulfuric principle yep. shows in this, this actual object. And it's nice because this is, you know, there's actually a lot of nice fonts out here. It turns out a lot of what I'm showing you I don't, I don't, are similar to hand build, which you can run into. Someone's actually got to a lot of work and built a lot of symbol fonts. And I like the fact that they have put this in because sometimes you'll see sulfur with just the tail instead of that nice little dip into it that gives you that idea of the, of the precipitation. So a couple more, we'll move on to, I know I'm kind of bearing with a lot of symbols, but I want to have some messages I want to build in. So we saw niter, we have salt, it's really just this kind of a movement of that bar in the circle. So we're taking the symbol of the circle and using it for a couple of different messages. 
sand, if we think of fire, you know, you know we have, a, you have a, a sand bath. Again, back to the I don't know how we could have had a lot of chemistry, but sometimes you'll heat something in a sand bath. You'll take you know, fire underneath the sand bath, it's a nice even heat, and then you'll put you know, your glassware inside of that. So we put our sand in the symbol of fire, because that's what we're using for when we're heating things. Um, oil, again, symbol of fire, but also you think of droplets. You know, put oil in water, we get the droplets, and something that breaks up. Um, we saw the tartaric at the tartar before, which is the square. We had the, the, the cross at the bottom for tartaric. So you have the crystal that comes out of it. And alchemists like to do a lot with base things, the most impure things, so they get the most pure things back out of it. So those of us who spend a lot of time in the country, I will recognize what this symbol for manure really looks like. <laughs> like I said, sometimes there's not a lot of deep symbolism. It's really in your face. So if you look at the tail here, that's where the manure comes from. So, and there are all chemical processes that involve taking manure from 40 white horses, sealing it in a vessel and fermenting it for a year. Yum. Or the urine or whatever. So, yeah, sometimes they all prefer not the most popular thing to be around. Um, but again, a water bath, again, simple, take water, we put a B, water bath. Okay, I'm a big surprise. A retort is literally just a symbol with that line coming down that represents exactly the shape of the glassware. So, some were literally symbols of convenience. Some were buildup of other symbols that have had a deeper meaning or relationship to kind of where they were coming from. You <laughs> we think of stone here as, you know, and also the uh, symbol for sand being associated with fire is also used for casting molds and metals. Exactly. Yeah, sand, sand and fire because of the way it can, you know, withstand the heat but also be used when heating things, very kind of relevant. So yeah, it definitely, you know, the symbols really kind of play themselves out in a lot of ways. Yeah, some of these may even see in modern pharmacy work, drams, pinch, uh, scruples, punnets. So some of these symbols still kind of play themselves out you know, one last same time. And the symbols are a little, I've drawn them out a little differently, but okay, you can start seeing, you know, night and day. Okay, you know, the sun rises, the sun sets. Mm -hmm. Again, not always, you know, kind of the deeper thing. How many people have a calendar <coughs> they cross the days out on? You know, cross the days out as you go. You know, you watch the, the hourglass. How long it actually takes for my computer to load? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had this. This is my work computer. Actually, it was re-imaged because it took about forty-five minutes to load up. So, yeah. Well, I'm still learning Office 2007. So, if I <laughs> problems, <laughs> yeah. So, I've mentioned a lot of these relations. You know, kind of symbolic buildup. And this is where I want to lay some of it out. Take a kind of a, a top-down approach. So, let's start with water. I showed several examples. And I alluded to it. So here are four things we saw symbolically, aqua vitae, aqua forest, aqua regia, and then a water bath. All of these are modifications of the symbol for water. You know, some are things dissolved in water, or you know, you know, things like the aqua forest, the aqua regia, um, are you know, acids, they're you know, aqueous acids. Water bath, for heating something up. But again, if you keep modifying the symbols and keep adding to them, you keep seeing sometimes the process. Well, rust is, you know, again, an oxidation process, but it's a result of being exposed to water. So you take water and you expose something to it, 
Again, you see some symbols that actually like sulfur, but we see things being reversed from an action of fire. Here is an action of water, taking metal and breaking it down. We don't see the iron symbol modified so much as we see the result of the action of water. A nice one I like down here is actually these two symbols for clay. You know, clay, you know, it comes out of, you get it out of the water, very wet substance. Um, so you take symbol for water, or you consider the symbol for earth, wet, you know, that wet aspect, and now we've simply modified that by mentioning, okay, it's earth and water kind of interconnected. You know, trying to get water out of clay is very challenging. It holds on to the water very deeply. So, you know, kind of important aspects. But the rust is an issue for me because, it, again, Rust is really you know, something that happens to, say, we'll say iron, but yet we've chosen not to use an iron symbol, but a you know, water symbol. So that action of water. I'll take the other end of this, end of this set and look at fire. Well, again, I mentioned sulfur. That's very nice and easy. Um, again, that action of distillation, you heat something up, you condense it down into that triangle. We're already talking about sand. And an amalgam, you take some metals, you heat them up, and you can literally layer in various metals, add in various metals to get that amalgamation, to get all those pieces put together. And then we take our sulfur, our fire, and we mix them together to get an arsenic sulfur. Arsenic sulfur. So again, we take our sulfur symbol, modify it a little bit, we've added in aspects of the symbol for arsenic. So again, we'll combine those elements to show what's going on. So we can either show kind of you know, the, the result, you know, add the pieces together, or maybe just show one symbol. Here is the, you know, what we're after as a result, and it shows you some of the things that it's gone on through. I mentioned this one, I like, you get some nice one. We will see, bring together two different salts that come out of this. You see, you know, sodium chloride, but also potassium nitrate, the, the nitrate. And you take, you take it and modify that, and here we have the rock salt comes out of that. Again, circle. So, you know, primarily we see a lot of triangles. We also see circles, we saw with urine and tartar, we saw squares. So it's really about taking you know, kind of basic shapes and then we keep building upon them, which is a lot of where the processes are. You're taking simple pieces and you build upon them, you're modifying them, you're adding to them, and that's how these processes work. And oil of vitriol, again, the salt, you know, sulfuric acid, very thick, viscous liquid. But again, made by taking you know, salts that contain sulfate, and again, salt, and then modifying to get an oil or a thick liquid out of it. So we're literally taking something like a salt and then breaking it down to get something modified out of that as a result. This is a nice one because it brings in lots of different aspects. It brings in the idea of the elements, brings in the tree of prima, but also kind of that universal seed. So you see kind of some of the layering that goes on from well, chemical work. A little tough to see all the layers on this one. So we start off with our universal seed up here. Breaks down into male and female, the two different salts. Again, male salt, female salt. So we've got the aspect of the tree of prima coming into play. In fact, it breaks down completely to the tree of prima. So male and female breaks down into, you know, the mercury, sulfur, and then salt in the body. Below that layer, we get the four elements layered in. So we go from chaos break it down into you know, the tree of prima, the four elements, back down into you know, reintegrated it to have the reborn universal. So from chaos down through the layers of order, you see differentiation of all the different pieces, but then they're all reintegrated back together. 
So, you know, one of the things, kind of, it's kind of a complex, you know, putting the pieces, but this is a lot of what the office were doing, taking something, breaking it down to its pieces, purifying those pieces, but then also reintegrating them. So, you know, everything you need is there at the beginning, and the goal of the office is to take all the pieces to break them down, and at the end, bring them all back together, but again, into a more ordered or pure aspect. Nice, nice layering of pieces. A lot, actually, this is one you can spend a lot of time thinking about how the pieces are differentiated, what the, the balances are, and also the transition from step to step. And as I mentioned, it, it made it probably seem like, oh, there's a nice, simple system. If you understand the, the alphabet of the alchemy, you can see all the processes that are going on. What I'm showing you is the result of kind of, you know, near the end of alchemy, a lot, you know, it became more systematized, or oh, there were a lot of people working on it, bringing all the pieces together. But we start seeing a square down here for fire. We'll talk about that one from being for urine earlier. You know, we see a lot of various symbols for air down here, and a lot of symbols for water, and the same thing for earth. So, you know, you know, the concepts maybe kind of kind of move together, but symbolically, it really comes down to you know, almost a shorthand or kind of what was you know, understood at the time. So, again, certain historical texts make it seem like, oh, there's one simple set of symbols that would be really different alpha that they were working with. It's far from that. And, you know, trying to show you some of the, the ideas of the symbology to think about the way the pieces go together, or maybe cut the concepts may go together more than just perfectly, you know, a set alphabet. Now here we're going to take a step, kind of, and talk about the other half of this. And this is where we get to kind of deeper symbolism. Kind of, you know, it's easy to understand oh, a symbol for fire, a symbol for water, we can piece it together. And this is where the real heart of alchemical texts comes into play. And why understanding alchemical texts is so challenging is instead of having one simple symbol, now we have concepts that are layered together that can mean many things. And alchemical texts start thinking, you know, really read a lot like stories. You start reading about a story like various birds doing this and one bird consuming another bird or this bird transforms into this bird or whatever. They make for very interesting, almost mythological tales. And this is how alchemists would couch a lot of what they were doing by building these symbolic tales so that those that understand what a black crow meant or what went into the process going from black crow to a white swan, they would understand the work. So that you know, you could pick up anyone could pick up the text and read it, but if you didn't understand the framework, it was a very interesting and almost an odd story at times. So birds, you know, they're they're kind of different animals that have different roles, but also the type of animal. These are all birds, so they're all going to be more considered volatile aspects. You can have less volatile, more earthy aspects, and that's a whole different set of animals. They may represent the same thing, but merely a you know, more volatile or more kind of, um, less volatile, more kind of fixed nature of things. So, or you have something kind of more watery, more mutable, but again, representing these same things. So, these actually all represent steps in an alchemical process. We start off with the black crow. We start off, you know, you have to die. You know, you have to give up what you know currently, the concepts you know, the life you has to end. You have to let that end and die. And there's a blackening or a putrefaction. That's where the color comes from. Things that decay turn black. They rot. Hence the color. This is a more volatile process, so you get the color for that. You want to get a bird for that. Well, things that decay, things turn white. You get white bones or 
you might get white solids or white salts that come out of that. So people come and think, oh, well, after decay, the black is white, there's purification. I'm all set, I'm done. I've gone from black to a pure white. This was kind of the kind of fool's gold, if you want to call it that, for an alchemist, because you think you're all done, you've reached that level of purification, but it's a superficial. And they pick the, the symbol of the swan, the swan is on top of the water. It is not in the water, it's not gone to those depths, it only floats on the surface, it's very superficial. So you have that decay, you get that superficial spirituality. You think you've made some big transformation, but you've only taken the first step. You're at the surface of things, and you can't stop now, you're really just kind of getting things going. We go from kind of a monochrome world, black and white, decay, purification to a certain extent, and now we move to the resplendent world of color. There's a lot of perspectives, there's a lot of aspects. We move into the world of the peacock, where you've gone from black and white, now you see things <coughs> in colors, bright, vibrant colors. You know, you know, as you crystallize salts, as a great example, you get a lot of various shapes of crystals that reflect light, you get a lot of various colors that come out of that as well. A lot of the alchemical work was done with metal salts, which have vibrant, beautiful colors. Usually toxic, but beautiful colors. <laughs> this is how we lose a lot of, lost a lot of early chemists as well. Uh, a lot of early chemists like to taste things they made. Um, and so you would, you know, if you look up in even some modern pendiaries, you can find out what the taste of nitroglycerin is. The oil itself, it puts them on their tongue or whatever. Unfortunately, some chemists killed themselves because, you know, taking things that were poisonous or whatever. Um, where I, well, part of where I went to graduate school, was someone actually discovered several elements and did a lot of amazing work, but he liked to grind up the salts and taste them, make sure they were, or feel them, make sure the crystals were ground fine enough. He gave himself colon cancer because of all the heavy metals he ingested. But he had crystallizing bowls this big. So he was crystallizing out you know, very concentrated solutions to get very trace amounts of a certain salt out. So impressive work, very alchemical, but you have to be careful with these things. So we move black and white world, you see the very the myriad colors, and now you reach that point where it's been a lot about yourself, now comes the aspect of self-sacrifice. We see the pelican. Where the symbol comes from, and I apologize if we after breakfast, is pelicans would go out, they would go hunting fish, and then they would regurgitate for their young, and because of their digestive juices, it would appear like blood was red. So it looked like they were literally giving up their own blood to feed their young. And that's where the idea of the self-sacrifice comes into play. So you've kind of made your change, you've gone through the kind of superficial, you've been opened up to the wider world, and now you realize it's a lot about self-sacrifice. Certain alchemists, you'll read the real alchemists, kind of hardcore alchemists, they were doing things to help, help fellow man or others. They weren't always in it for themselves, and that's where that important aspect, the spiritual aspect really comes into play. Then lastly, after the self-sacrifice, you've started kind of making these transitions, then it becomes the real kind of consumption and then kind of coming back out of all those ashes. So that's where you have another symbolic death, but now the final rebirth comes in. So you have, have one death, you think you kind of come through the change, and then finally there's that consumption by fire, that last purification, and then you get kind of the final product as a result. So five birds, one whole display of the spiritual process. This is also an alchemical process. You take something, you let it decay, blacken, you purify, you pull out the crystals, you keep purifying it to pull out more and more of the various aspects. You have, there's some, actually, uh, I'll kind of 
you put it in, in a vessel and you kind of circulate it. You destroy it again, then a last run through the fire and the last purification to cleanse it all. So again, spiritual path, symbolic path, and even a kind of physical path in five birds. So if you read the story, you're going to see the symbols, but again, if you don't know what they relate to, Kind of miss out on this kind of real deeper meaning. Same, you know, they take the same story. Instead of being volatile elements, which are all birds, you can make it all, you can make it a toad. This is the wet pathway versus the kind of the, the, the volatile pathway. So again, the toad would be considered a you know a, a bird representing the black crow death, the wet. You know, again, toads seen going in mud and dirt, coming back out. So again, an aspect of death. Um, instead of being a kind of layer on the water in terms of superficial spirituality, the eagle is considered the dry pathway, you know, up in the sky, above the earth, but not always into heaven. So again, in that middle realm between the two layers. Uh, and some of our more fanciful creatures, we have the unicorn, the dragon. Um, the two of my favorites, I'm going to talk a bit about these two, is the... Uh, the green line and the, and the, the gray wolf. He said till 11. Right? Yep. <laughs> he said an hour, and I'm like, an hour? <laughs> so. so let's talk about my two favorite animals, the green lion and the gray wolf. And these have some great, these are really nice because they're very deep stories connected with them, but also some very interesting aspects and very personal, transformative stories. Uh, the green lion, Again, we think of everyone's going green these days. The idea of going green is by far an old concept. You know, you know, old early alchemists or whatever spiritualists thought about green in terms of nature and the power of nature, so it was always recognized. And then the gray wolf is considered antinomic, but it's also again the gray wolf sometimes had a bad role. Always had you know that kind of the villain in certain cultures. You know, it was coming in the wintertime. Of eating animals or going after people or whatever, so kind of that predator nature, that kind of fighting against man or man's always against that, that nature of the wolf. Well, commonly you see the green lion devouring the sun and the sun bleeding as a result. Well, I'll cast this in a modern approach. Plants absorb sunlight and get chlorophyll, you get green. So plants devour the sun and something green comes out of it. So it is something devouring the power of the sun and growing as a result of the power of nature. Um, what we also see, and this is a little hard, this symbol, so if I blow it up, it kind of breaks down. We have the lion standing, consuming the sun, and there are seven red stars down the length of the lion. And this doesn't represent the power of nature, it actually represents a process. That sulfuric acid, was used to dissolve metals. It was part of the process, the dissolving of these various metals to do whatever reaction you were doing. Well, nowadays I can buy a, you know, a gallon jug of sulfuric acid. It's a nice, mostly clear liquid. It's a thick, oily, oily oil, thick, kind of viscous, syrupy type. Not bad. Back then, it was usually made from iron sulfate, which led to a very nice green color. So the green lion could actually represent you know, the green sulfuric acid or that aspect. It was used commonly to get yeah, the strong acid to dissolve the metals. So the green lion could represent the aspect of consumption or dissolution or breaking down, kind of a digestion. 
So I like to make, kind of put that modern aspect of thinking about nature, but also really what's going on. And you'll see there's, you know, the sun has now set. It's consumed, it's been pulled in, it's been, you know, the sun is set. And then again, then the sun will rise again later on. So again, we see that cyclical nature, that consumption, death, the rebirth comes back out of that. And it's a little tough, it's a woodcut, where we have actually two different lines. We have a green line, volatile female principle, again, asophic mercury. If you think of mercury, mercury forms a lot of good amalgams with other metals. You can mix it together and it really mixes very well. That's why you get a lot of early dental work using you know, mercury mixed, mixed into you know, mercury amalgams. Then it's a red line, which is a fixed male principle, asophic sulfur. So again, we're mixing the philosophic male, philosophic female. We have a fixed nature and a volatile nature, and we're bringing them together in that struggle between the two. Commonly, volatile things would have a have wings to represent that volatility again. So they go up into air. Nowadays, modern chemicals that are volatile evaporate. They go from they easily evaporate, you know, so rubbing alcohol or alcohol, it'll eventually evaporate. That's volatility. So it's given wings to represent that. Now, a better story that comes out of the two is the gray wolf. And the gray wolf has a nice story alchemically and also, again, again a, a deeper spiritual one. So the way the story goes is there's an aging king on the throne, kind of corrupt, decaying, and he, he's either died or he either dies or he is killed and given to the wolf. The wolf then consumes the body of the old king. The wolf is then taken, thrown into the fire, burnt up, and then literally from the body of the wolf, comes a brand new, young, healthy, vibrant king out of that. So the oldest you know, dies, is consumed, digested, and then through fire, you know, youth and kind of purification happens. Nice story, you know, makes a lot of, you know, kind of nice symbolic sense. Also a completely you know, accurate chemical story. Antimony will blend with a lot of other metals. So if you take antimony and mix it with, say, a sample of gold that is impure, you mix them together, it'll make a nice amalgam, put that in the fire, heat it up, the antimony will react with other impurities and get burnt off in the fire, keep burning it off, and it'll all go away and you're left with a nice pure sample of gold. So you can think of it as a personal kind of aspect of kind of cleansing or purification or rebirth, but also represents a simple chemical process for purifying a sample of gold or any other metal by mixing it with the antimony, then burning off things in the fire. So you commonly see, you have either a set of symbols where the, you know, the dead king is being consumed. In the back, you see the wolf here and then the new young king coming back out of the fire. So again, one, not a symbol or even one animal, but one simple picture gives you a whole story that relates to an alchemical process along with a physical process. Can we take about five minutes? Sure, please. Everybody get up. Sure. Use the bathroom. We've been about an hour. Yeah. Sorry, I keep going long. Yeah. It's a no, 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 great no, no, story. No, no, no. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good.